The Navigators is an international, interdenominational Christian organization whose objective is to help fulfill Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations. They individually teach the basics of the Christian life to new believers, who then teach others. They work on campuses, military bases, and among lay men and women on every continent. We spent two evenings on the first chapter. Tonight we'll go lightly over the second chapter. Here in James, in the first chapter, he points out that we will meet trials, that's for sure. We'll meet trials from without, and we'll meet temptations from within. But we have a good and an unchangeable God who has given us a new nature. He's given us the Bible. He promises to answer prayer, a sincere prayer for wisdom. Our responsibility, we talked about last night, is to put away sin and to obey the word, obey the scripture. Take God seriously and do what he says. The result of this obedience is what God is after all the way through, and it really is the theme of this book, and that is stable, consistent character. Stable, consistent character. You know, we all like to have the results without the investment. We look at someone and we say, oh, I wish I were a Christian like that one. That, that Christian, every time you're around that person, you come away blessed. And there are people like this that you know. And they, they lift up your spirits. They buoy up your spirits. Or they say, man, what a prayer warrior. What a, what a personal witness. What a, what a helper to Christians that person is. I'd like to be like that. It's like playing a piano or singing or a guitar or anything else. To get that result, you have to make an investment. And someone has said, there never was a feast without a sacrifice. Somebody always pays. And James is talking about how God uses the trials, the temptations, the tests of life to produce this end result that we all want. I, I hope we want. I know that God wants and I know that God is relentless in going after it, too, in his people. He does not let us off the hook. That's why there are many Christians that are more unhappy after they were Christians than they were before they were Christians. Because now the Spirit of God is in them, and they can't, be, they can't even have any more, they can't have fun of the things you used to enjoy. I mean, they, they, they don't have the best of either world anymore. And God is relentless about this. Now, this Christian character should result in certain things. In chapter 2, it's love. Chapter 3, it's self-control. Chapter 4, it's purity. Chapter 5, it's patience. Tonight we're in chapter 2, the theme of love. And you might say that the text for this chapter is found in Galatians 5, 6, 5, 6, where it says, Faith working through love. Faith working through love. 
or love as demonstrated to the helpless and the needy, as it says in the first chapter, visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction. There's a verse of scripture that's been a great probing challenge to me. And I wonder about this many times, and I, I wonder how life is really meant to be lived. Do you wonder about that sometimes? And one of these verses that's probing to me is John 12, 26. Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. And the question I oftentimes ask myself is this. Where is Jesus? He says, where I am, there shall my servant be also. Where is he? Well, you recall that when he first walked into a synagogue, as recorded early in one of the Gospels, he asked for the scripture, he unrolled it to Isaiah, the 61st chapter, and he applied it to himself. And just let me read this to you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Skipping a couple of lines, to comfort all that mourn, to grant unto those that mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound, Jesus said, I came to help them. That's where he is. And that's where I ought to be. As a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, it is my responsibility to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mustn't forget that part. But we must also remember to be involved in the very thing we shun, at least I shun, and that is where there is sin, where there is suffering, where there is sorrow, and where there is death, that is where I belong. A very, very disturbing experience happened to me a few years ago. I've never been a pastor, so I have not known how to conduct myself in situations where there was death or someone was dying. And, uh, or someone had cancer or something, I'm very uncomfortable. And uh, I usually found reasons not to show up there. And there was a businessman in town who had that I knew, and one day he called me and said, Lauren, I'd like to come out. I need some spiritual advice. So he came out and talked with me, and uh, he told me that the doctor told him he had lung cancer. Well, during the next, I don't know how many months, he was in and out of the hospital. And if I were speaking somewhere around the area, more than likely as not, I'd, if he were out of the hospital, I'd look, and there he would be. I was up in Woodland Park for a series of meetings, and he came up there. Then he was back in the hospital, and I uh, went in to see him. And uh, 
He was laying there on the bed and he wanted to hold my hand. Well, now, I haven't been much on holding men's hands, to start with. And secondly, I was uncomfortable in the situation. I hadn't been this kind of a thing before. And uh, about four or five minutes, I left. And uh, I never saw him again. The Lord took him home. You know, some weeks after that, I was traveling and I picked up a magazine. I was reading an article by one of the doctors, Mayo, of the Mayo Clinic. And in it, one of the doctors, Mayo, said, when my time comes to die, I hope that it's quick. But if there is some delay, I hope there is someone near who loves me and who will hold my hand. And I thought to myself, I could have held his hand. That's where I belonged. But frankly, I chickened out. And since that time, I've, been, I've learned something. I've gone to see people on purpose now. And I don't think I've ever gone to a place where there was a Christian in, in need or in trouble or dying, but when I came away blessed in my own soul. I know Gene War wanted me to, this was when I was kind of getting a little more used to this, wanted me to go visit a lady in Oklahoma City. And uh, I was still jumpy and nervous about it. And we went there and we spent a half hour. And I tell you, I remember to this day, I have never sensed the presence of God more than I sensed in that room. Because I always wonder, what will I say? What will I do? What, you know? And I realized the gift of your presence I think that's where we belong. And so James says, now real worship, real practical religion, the kind of religion that's pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Needy people. We don't do it enough, but a few weeks ago my wife and I jumped in the car on Sunday afternoon and we had a little mental list. We just went around visiting widows. And if we can work it out, we're going to have a little get-together of uh, new widows, just that we know within a mile radius of our house. And uh, why? Because this is what the Holy Spirit through James says that we're to do. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Love. Now, James 2 is all about love. Now, let's take a quick look at it. Uh, I, uh, I divide James into three passages, three sections. 1 to 7, 8 to 13, and 14 to 26. Now, in James 1 to 7, he's simply saying that he's warning against partiality snobbery or playing favorites. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, have a seat here, please. 
Why you say to the poor man, stand there or sit at my feet? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme that honorable name by which you are called? And in so doing, we just turn around some of the scriptures, such as Psalm 15:4, which says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And sometimes we tend to reverse it. To honor a reprobate because he is somebody or has some money and despise those who fear the Lord. Now let's say, well, that's not me. I'm one of the fairest persons you've ever seen. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. Because uh, if you are, I want to get you a secret because I'm not. Then he goes on and says, now, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, snobbery, playing favorites, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. It's an interesting thing to me, the reverse of that today, the people that are clamoring for peace but think nothing of sleeping with anybody that they happen to want to that evening. Uh, both are wrong, according to James. If you do not commit adultery but do kill, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, he's saying partiality or snobbery is not love. Since love fulfills God's law, a failure to love is to break God's law. Because Romans 13 says that the whole law is summed up in this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself because love does no evil to his neighbor. Then in verses 14 to 26, he points out that genuine faith, real faith, the real thing, results in works of love. And there are four illustrations here, two negative and two positive. The first negative is the armchair philanthropist. Verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? That is that kind of faith. Is that a saving faith, really? Because if a brother or a sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. The armchair philanthropist, that kind of faith, is dead. Because faith always does something. You read the Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of the heroes of faith, and they did something. By faith Abraham obeyed and he went out. So and so offered. You notice the verbs. They all did something. Then he uses another illustration here of the demons in verse, verse 19. You believe that God is one? 
And you know, uh, the Jews, and I won't take time for this, because I want to get to uh, the center part here in a little bit. Deuteronomy 6, 4, they all know that, that there's one God, and so on. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, their kind of faith does not result in peace. It results in shuddering. And the kind of faith that saves is a faith that results in peace, right? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Then, so there are two illustrations of dead faith. The armchair philanthropist who's got all these high and mighty ideas but he doesn't do anything about it. And the demons. And then he has two illustrations of living faith. Abraham and Rahab. Beginning with verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You that see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body is apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now we could get involved in the doctrinal relationship of James to Romans. And I don't think it's too difficult to explain. But after it's all explained, we'll miss the heart of the whole thing. So I'm going to skip the explanation. <laughs> and I want to point out this. Isn't it something that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to demonstrate living faith, chose Abraham and Rahab? A Jew and a Gentile. A man, a woman, the head of a nation, a harlot, to illustrate real, genuine, living faith. The whole gamut. Now, Abraham's act of faith was toward God, because the illustration has to do with the offering of Isaac. And so Abraham held nothing back from God. Rahab's faith was toward man. Her act of faith was to help the messengers, the spies that Moses had sent out. Uh, was, it, was it Joshua? Joshua. And she helped the needy. Okay. That's James 2. That wasn't bad, was it? That took me an hour to go through half, two hours to go through James 1. Uh, but don't get your hopes up high. I'm not finished yet. In fact, I just got started. I want to share something with you that God has been really using in my own heart. And that's the center of this whole chapter is verse 8. Look at it. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Now, what is love? I wonder if anyone has a good working definition of love. Now, I have looked all over for them. And I've come up with one, 
It's sort of my own. It's a little composite of others. And it's very meaningful to me, and I hope I can make it meaningful to you. And this is the heart of what I want to leave with you tonight. Love. Love is an unselfish concern. It's an unselfish concern that freely accepts another, freely accepts another, and seeks his good. Now I want to use that as a working definition just for a few comments for the rest of my time this evening, and it shouldn't be too long. Those of you who are here or have been around the navigators for a while know that we have certain basic beliefs that underlie everything we do. One of these is that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Another one is that the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God, in other words, the authority of the Scripture. The other has to do with the importance of every individual. That every human being, every life, God intended to be significant and is significant. And that every individual, the importance of every individual, that one seems to want to conk out here. You like purple or blue or green? <laughs> purple. I like blue. The importance of the individual, I guess I'm writing here, you can't see this, maybe I can skip that. The importance of that's individual. You can't read it? It makes me feel like I'm using visual aid, so bear with me. <laughs> now, we believe that every human being is important. Everyone. Be they seven or seventy. I remember... I was in England with the Billy Graham team and teaching counseling classes. And a lady walked up to me. I wasn't prepared to give this illustration, so I'm looking for my verse while I tell it. Yeah. And she said, Mr. Sani, could I see you a little bit? I said, fine. So we sat down in the pew. She said, I am 84 years old. Do you think that God can use me? And it flashed into my mind about Anna in the temple. And so I read to her about this woman. It says, And as she was a widow till she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. God was using her night and day. And what struck me so was a few weeks before I was in Scotland and after a counseling class, a young boy came up, about 13 or 14, that was a spastic and he couldn't hold his head still. And he was, hey, Mr. Sandy, do you think that God can use me? And I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, son, I know that God can use you. I believe that every individual is important to God, is significant 
first of all, just by virtue of what he is. A being made in the image of God. Who am I? I'm a being made in the image of God. And I'm significant and important just because you exist. But also important by virtue of what a person can become. Now, let's just tie that in with love. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts a person just by virtue of what he is. A human being made in the image of God, long hair, barefooted, straight, tie, bowler hat, whatever. Love freely accepts people because of what they are. Made in the image of God. I, I, I feel a sermon coming on there, but I'll, I'll drop that just for now. <laughs> and also, love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another because of what he is and seeks his good for what he can become. Now, love, I said, is an unselfish concern. I debated that for a while. In fact, a long time I used the word active concern. I think unselfish concern is probably right because, and I doubt if any of us therefore ever love perfectly, but we care and we are concerned. Now I said here that love freely accepts another. Now this verse 8 is right in the middle there of, J of James 2. Take a look at it again. And in the first seven verses, what is he saying? Don't just freely accept the rich man and sort of reject or put down dishonor the poor man. Neither should we do it the other way around. We should accept the poor man. We should accept the rich man. Love would accept both. Freely accept them. I think I shared with some of you another experience that was very uh, forcibly impressed upon me. First time I ever went to England was with the Billy Graham team. And my friend Charlie Riggs and I had gotten there and got into London late at night and went up to our hotel room and we had separate rooms. And I sat on the bed and didn't want to unpack. We were going to be there five or six months and a little blue. And it was a typical London night, you know, foggy and drippy. I thought it was typical anyway. So I called up Charlie Riggs down to his room. I said, Charlie, what are you doing? He says, nothing. <laughs> I said, neither am I. Let's go for a walk. So we started out and went down the streets and everything was quiet. And it, we, I, we didn't know. He we was sort of afraid somebody might jump out of any doorway. And so we were looking for a place to just get a bite to eat and couldn't find a place anywhere. And finally, we saw on the second floor of a building a little sign in the window that said, Cafe. So we located the door and got up there, and there were, oh, a few people in there. And among them was an American, obviously an American, uh, particularly in those days, the dress was quite a bit of contrast, and he was drunk and noisy. And he recognized us immediately, and he said, well, hello there! And I was kind of embarrassed, you know, we quiet down, first time in England, and here's some American noisy guy, and I'd heard about him, and we wanted to win the English and all the rest, and I, that bothered me. <laughs> So, well, what are you fellas doing here? And my friend Charlie Riggs would talk to him, but I just kind of, you know, uh, wished he'd shut up. 
And what did you do but come over by our table? He sits down by Charlie Riggs across from me, talking in the way, and what are you fellows doing here? And Charlie said to him, after a while, he said, well, we're here with the Billy Graham team. Oh, Billy Graham, huh? And he looked at me and he said, you won't make a missionary. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? And this is what he did. He went. Uh, he wasn't too drunk to read me. He's right. He was right. I learned something from a drunk, noisy American that night. That it showed all over. I did not freely accept that man. I didn't want to be associated with him. Related to him in any way. I don't think that's love. And a lot of times I'm afraid to freely accept people because in freely accepting them then I think that I am also thereby condoning something about them that I may greatly dislike. So therefore, love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another but never stops there. Jesus freely accepted people, didn't he? But he didn't stop there. He always sought their good. I'll make another admission to you. Hippies repulse me. I'm, I'm a straight. I, I'm just plain straight. Please turn to side two. I'm, I'm a straight. I, I'm just plain straight. Yet I love hippies. I guess. Sometimes, sometimes I don't. Man, I'm telling you, when I do my little jog or walk along the Mesa Road, my, I've got more muscle in my right arm than my left, giving the peace sign back. The hippies are always going off. You know, they, they drive back and forth in peace. <laughs> this summer, as we did last summer, we have a training program up in Boulder, and its objective is to reach hippies for Christ. And last summer, at the end of the summer, they had a little Bible conference for a few days. They asked me to come up and speak. And my wife and I went up there and to meet these kids. And boy, I tell you, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And uh, years ago, when I first started my Christian life and ministry in Los Angeles, I'd go down once a week to Skid Row in L.A., and there it was old men and it was alcohol. Here it's young kids and drugs. And they're children. They're, I mean, they're little children. A lot of people have a wrong idea about hippies. They think that the radicals and the hippies are the same, which they're not. Hippies are dropped out. They're not, they're not fighting anything. And they're like little children. If you have to think of them as 12-year-olds, really. My wife and I walked into to the meeting and there's one of the girls sitting out there and she's petting a cat. A little kitten, so you uh, you stop and talk to her about it, and you know, and and make a little conversation, and, and she's trying to get it to sleep so she can go into the meeting. And yet that same girl may have been uh, may have had a miscarriage or been married a couple times. I know when we left there, and uh, I thought about it, and it affects me the same way since. You know, I cried half the way home. And I think Governor Reagan of California might be seen to be right sometimes that we're going to lose a whole generation. 
But I know something. We've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. And you'll never reach them unless you love them. And to love them means to freely accept. But I don't want to freely accept them because they smell. They look bad. They, I don't want to condone them. But, and so down inside, I'm, I'm kind of mixed up. But love will accept them. And you know why that this culture, I'm sure you know this, is so appealing, particularly to the artistic, sensitive young person today? Because it's an accepting culture without demands. And part of the problem is that it does freely accept, but it doesn't seek their good. Well, maybe I think so. But to be like Jesus, I'll freely accept people. Human beings made in the image of God. And really, how are you going to do anything with them? How are you going to help people? Unless you can learn to accept them. Now, frankly, I've admitted it to you, and you don't have to admit it out loud to me, but it's not always easy, is it? Or some scoundrel. Or somebody that's done you in in one way or another. Or somebody that's broken up a family. I mean, there's some real tests. But you see, love doesn't stop there. That's where it begins, though. We are accepted in the Beloved while we were yet sinners. I think sometimes we need to stop and remember how great of sinners we were and how in what shape we were in when God accepted us, freely accepted us. But then seeks his good. And so the last half of the chapter is talking about the last half of my definition, seeking people's good by meeting their needs. And people's needs, according to Luke 2.52, can be physical, they can be intellectual, spiritual, social. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. That's physically, intellectually, spiritually, and socially. Now, Rahab was commended here for all history for us to read about because she put herself out to meet the physical needs of some messengers. Now that she risked her life to do it. Well, let's see. I got some theories here, but I better leave off the theories. Yeah. You know, Doss Trotman was a great example to me. More than one time I've known or I found out that he emptied his wallet to help somebody. He'd come back from a trip to the mission field with his suitcase empty. He'd given his clothes away, and not because he had that many clothes at home either. He was the greatest guy to instantly help somebody who was in need. I remember way back once, this was way before the Supreme Court decision and all the rest, two black fellows, and we call them Negroes then, black now, but they were, their car was stalled right in the middle of Richmond, Virginia. In the deep south. We were down there with the Graham Crusade. I mean, he didn't, it didn't make any difference. They had a rattle trap of a car, too. It made no difference to him who it was. They or somebody, and he says, come on. So we rushed out there in the street, and us two white boys were pushing those two black boys down the street. I mean, it was just instant. I think that's, an, uh, that's just a, a little illustration now of love. 
that meets people's needs. But it seems to me that some of us are so self-centered, we're still thinking about ourselves, that we are insensitive to the needs of others. I think of Bob Foster, who runs Lost Valley Ranch. He's on the board of directors and the navigators. He'll call my house. I remember years ago, he'd call my house and one of my kids would answer and he wouldn't say, Ah, is your dad there? He'd say, Who's this? Well, this is Gene. Well, hi, Gene. This is Bob Foster. How's school? he have 30 seconds for her before he asked for dad. No, I haven't got time for that. Oh, I'm not that important. Are you that important? That we don't have time for people? Be they seven, or seventeen, or seventy? I sometimes think as navigators, you know, we work mainly with kids, young people, between the ages of 18 and 25. It's almost like we are, how old are you? 26? Out of my, you're not in my department. <laughs> See, I'm a Christian before I'm a navigator. And as a Christian, I have a responsibility to God to meet the needs of people as I come across them and contact them within my life. That's love. That's James says, that is pure religion and undefiled. That's the real thing. In fact, he's saying there, that's real worship. We think that real worship is conducting of a service on Sunday morning. He says real worship is faith that works through love, that freely accepts people and looks for a way of meeting their needs. And it gets right down there, doesn't it? James is a book for today, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, let me just touch on an item here. I'll, I'll, I'll quit, really. It says here, you love your neighbor as yourself. Apply this definition to yourself for a moment. Is this legitimate for you to have an unselfish concern that freely accepts yourself and seeks your own good? I say it does. One problem that many people have, they have never accepted themselves for the way God made them. A lot of people are mad at God. I'm too short, I'm too tall, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I have no talents, I can't do this, I can't do that, or I'm this way, or I'm that way. And we've got a mad on with God. Or where somehow or other we have never accepted ourselves as we are. You know, that's worth a message in itself. Have you ever said, thank you, God, for my being like I am? There were a few years in there that I thought, well, I'll never make it in this job because I don't have the, um, the emotional reserves. And I'm kind of a... Uh, in fact, I just ordered a book the other day, The Tough-Minded Manager, so I can toughen up a little bit. Too soft. I'm soft-headed and soft-hearted. Well, I said to one Christian man who came through here, a fine man of God, I telling him about this. I said, you know, I, I don't know if I've got it. I said, I stand up and talk about some things and I blubber well, he said, you know, Jeremiah was the weak, called the weeping prophet. And he had a very tough message to deliver. God does not entrust a hard message to hard hearts. You ought to thank God for the way you are. And God must think that the way you are is what he wants where you are, or he wouldn't have put you there. Can you freely accept yourself? And don't say you don't have any gifts. Because Peter says, as each has a gift. You wish your gift was somebody else's gift? 
If you want my wife to come apart, it seems, trap her into speaking a week from now. I mean, the thought of speaking petrifies her. She does a good job when she does it, which is rarely. But that's not her gift, really. I'll admit that. I, I'll do the speaking in our house. But uh, <laughs> that is outside of our house, I do that. <laughs> but she has a gift. It's my job to help her develop her gift. And not be like Marina Downing or Marion Foster or somebody or somebody else, but to be her. And you've got to be you. That's, that's, a, that's good sound stuff. Freely accept yourself. I don't know if you need that or not. I have a feeling some do. And then look out for yourself. See to it that you take care of yourself physically. While you're here trying to see how you can better organize your life spiritually, that's right. So love others as you love yourself. What about loving God? Well, you'd say, does that apply to God? Well, it's an unselfish concern that freely accepts God, and I can sure put it there because a lot of people won't take God just like he is. Well, if I were God, I'd do this. And so why doesn't God do that? Well, how can you seek his good? And here I am through. God apparently wants something. Now, the Bible says he doesn't have need of things, but he apparently wants something. He wants fellowship. He wants dedication. He wanted something from Abraham. And in order to get that something, what did he ask him to do? Now, Abraham had waited for years for an answer to prayer, an answer to a promise of God, and what was that? A son. And after he got this son, and he was grown up to a pretty good-sized boy, one day God said, Abraham, God tested Abraham, and he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And listen to what he said. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. It's almost like God is rubbing it in. And go to the land of Moriah and offering him there as a burnt offering. Now, was God trying to be tough on Abraham? No. He loved him. This was his promise. And you know the story how they went up together? And God provided a sacrifice and they came down together. And can't you just imagine that Abraham and Isaac had a renewed relationship like they never had before? You see, faith withheld nothing from God. Faith worked through love. Abraham loved God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Well, I don't know how it strikes you, but this, this matter of love, that really, that gets right down there. And as they say, that's where it's at. Let's look at James 2.8 once more. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another and seeks his good. Try that on for size. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of ministering to you by way of this cassette. You can multiply this ministry by sharing this cassette with someone else.